If you were here last week, you know that we began a series on the Gospel of Luke. We uh, talked about the fact that it's incredibly easy as people to get distracted from different things uh, or from important things, that uh, we can set our sights on something that is important to us and important um, really from any perspective. And before we know it, we find ourselves kind of going to the left or to the right or to something else that's also good, but not nearly as important as the thing upon which we are to be focused. And I, I shared that with you at the beginning to say also that the church, I think, is, is exceptionally good at getting distracted. We're exceptionally good at making uh, minor issues, major issues, and, uh, and crashing and burning as a result. So the hope and the heart of this time, this fall, as we come to the Gospel of Luke, is to come back to the center, come back to the climax of the story of what God has done and is doing in our world, and therefore actually in our lives, and not just something that we read about uh, that doesn't mean, any, mean anything to us, but something that's central and integral to our life today. So we're coming back to the center, coming back to the story of Jesus. So you might be perplexed when we get to verse 5 in Luke chapter 1. Luke 1 through 1, 1 through 4, which we looked at last week, is this grandiose sentence that mirrors in some ways Greco-Roman historiography, to announce a substantial uh, writing is in your hands. This is no uh, small thing. This is a substantial piece of work that's been put in your hands that's reliable and trustworthy, well-researched, and it affects all of the empire, all of the known world. That's, in a sense, what verses 1 through 4 say. So when you get to verse 5, it's a bit of a, a, a drastic transition, an abrupt transition, even in the writing style of Luke. You get to verse 5, and all of a sudden we've got this grandiose entrance, and then in the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah. So we go from big, wide, big picture, down to narrow, small, and obscure. Why? Now, if any of you have watched the Olympics, and I know that most all of you have, let's say that you turned on the Olympics last whenever they were, I don't remember when the last Olympics were, and you wanted to watch, um, watch uh, Usain Bolt run the 100-meter finals. So you turn it on at like 8 o'clock, you know, it's not going to come on until 8.45, you turn it on to watch this dramatic uh, event, perhaps the, the, the biggest event of the Summer Olympics, and all of a sudden, instead of seeing a race in front of you, the camera cuts, right? And, and you go back to Jamaica, and you go back to a village, and you start learning a little bit more about this young boy named Bolt who had exceptional speed, and, and on and on and on. Well, in a sense, that's what's happening here in Luke's Gospel. It's not the same thing, but it's the same general idea, that Luke is taking us behind the scenes before we get even to the story about Jesus and giving us the story before the story so that when the actual story comes, we're clued in enough to know that something great is about to happen. The tension is mounting. The importance of this moment is beginning. So that when the screen comes back and the gun's about to go off in the 100-meter dash, you're invested a whole lot more than you were when you turned on the television. So that's what Luke is doing with great literary skill. And he's pointing us back and weaving this story. What begins in verse 5 goes to the end of chapter 2, and it's called the infancy narrative. And he's weaving this story about Jesus, the center, into a grander narrative. One that has had a history for thousands of years before the time of his writing, before the time of Jesus' birth. And this is the problem, isn't it, often for us as 21st century American Christians. 
if you fall in that category. Some of you here may not. We're glad that you're here. But this is, this is a problem for us, is we, we think Jesus uh, is the beginning. You know, we, we think that the baby in the manger is the start of everything that was important to know. And as a result, we fail, we, we fail to understand these deep kind of resonances, these, these base notes that are holding the whole thing together. And so Luke is taking us in to this story to give us a better understanding, a broader understanding, so that when Jesus arrives on the scene and we begin to study his life and his ministry, we have a greater sense of his significance in the broader story of God and his purposes in the world. And he does that in two primary ways in this infancy narrative. First, he ties in the story of Jesus with the story of Abraham. Now, Abraham was the one who looms large over the history of the Israelites. Abraham was the father of the nation, the father of faith. Abraham was where it all began. Genesis chapter 12. God calls Abraham and and says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will bless you. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So here's one clue as to why we're getting down to the microscopic from this big macro entry. Is God says, what I'm going to do through you, Abraham, and through your descendants is actually going to be significant for the entire world. So what I'm beginning in you will bless all nations. And so Luke weaves his narrative in with this prior story. We see it right in the beginning in Luke 1. In Mary's song, she ends her song. And by the way, let me just say, we're actually not going to be in the infancy narrative beyond tonight. We're going to launch ahead and save some of these themes for Advent and Christmas when they might be seasonally more appropriate. But I I couldn't skip it all together. So this is your one shot at the infancy narrative right now. Um, So Mary says at the end of her song, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. There's Abraham. Zechariah says in his song, to the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. There are themes, Abraham, barren women. When there's a story about a barren woman in the Bible, listen up because something big is about to happen. Sarai, Abraham, barren, past the years of childbearing. God promises a son. Zechariah, Elizabeth, old, past the years of childbearing. Through the angel Gabriel in the temple, God promises a son. The echoes are everywhere in chapters 1 and 2. That somehow this story of Jesus is going to pick up the prior tunes of the story of God and his people Israel, beginning with Abraham, and bring them to their fulfillment and their climax. God makes a covenant with Abraham. That covenant is remaining to be filled in the day and age that Luke is writing, or that Jesus is born. So Luke's weaving in with Abraham. That's the first uh, little jaunt down a village in Palestine um, scene in the TV. The second scene is David. And this one kicks off even earlier than Abraham in verse 32. When the angel is saying to Mary about the birth of Jesus, the angel says, And the Lord God will give, give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Second Samuel 7, God promises to David an everlasting kingdom. And this promise became uttermost in the minds of the nation of Israel. A king would reign forever, God says. A descendant of David would sit on the throne. But for some reason, Israel has sat under foreign reign and rule, subject to oppression, taxation, uh, misery. And this promise needs to be fulfilled. 
God needs to hear of his, this promise that he's made. He needs to bring it to fruition. So Luke is saying again, not only is, is Jesus, the story of Jesus, picking up these themes of God and his people and Abraham and the world, but he's also picking up these themes of David and the everlasting kingdom. So that as the birth narrative begins, this infancy narrative develops steam here. By the time we get to the birth of Jesus in chapter 2, and then to his earthly ministry in chapters, in, starting in chapter 4, our expectations have risen uh, exponentially as readers sitting, so that when the screen comes back on and the gun's about to go off, we've got a sense of expectation and investment that this is something big. And this is something beyond just a little story about a priest and his wife in ancient Palestine. But this is a story about a king, a creation, a creator, and a people in need of a savior. So this is a story that's not just about a few people once upon a time, but this is a story that's, that's about you and about me. It's about anyone who's ever been born. This is a story that reaches into our lives and makes a difference. So wherever you come to this time at Church of the Cross on Sunday, September 19th, 2010, however skeptical you might be about this story, the, the claims of the story of Jesus that Luke is making for us by weaving his narrative in with the prior story of God's purposes is that this story means everything for you and for me. This story is determinative. Now let me say that as Luke begins the story with Zechariah and Elizabeth, we can see, and I want to pull out four things, four uh, chords, to use the musical analogy again, that are ringing in this story from its beginning, from the beginning of Genesis which helps us see the continuity of God's work in the world, but also helps us understand how we might be participants at some level in this story. You know, if you hear the soundtrack of an of a Andrew Lloyd Webber musical like Phantom of the Opera or Les, Les Miserables, that, that these tunes have a kind of common thread through them from time to time. And so these are common threads that are woven into this bigger story of God and his purposes in the world. And these common threads that we can even see here at the very beginning, seemingly obscure place to start with a priest and his wife in Jerusalem. These, these are, are themes that run throughout and are central. And they challenge us in the world. They challenge the common way of living and of thinking and of, of walking in the world. Right here at the beginning. The first thread is this one. God is faithful. More than anything else, the story of Jesus demonstrates to us God's faithfulness to his word and his promises. Okay, hold on. Go to the world today for just a second. Is that the message that you hear about God? No. Is that the message that your circumstances sometimes would tell you to believe about God? No. Well, just in case you're wondering, the world really hasn't changed a lot since the beginning. So we're not unique in this. That oftentimes the way we experience the world would lead us to believe something different about God. And yet from the beginning, God has demonstrated his faithfulness to his people 
over and over and over again. And nowhere more clearly is that demonstrated than in this story about Jesus, his son. To fulfill his covenant promises to his people and to bless all the world through Abraham and his seed. So God is faithful. This is something that weaves through and through the biblical narrative from start to finish. And it's countercultural at every point. When your life is spinning out of control, when you're dealing with something that's much more difficult than any of us could ever imagine, when there's an unknown thing in the future about your health or about your career or about your family that you don't have control over, every temptation is to say, God, you don't care. But the biblical witness is constantly saying, God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. Gabriel says in verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth were obviously longing for a son or for a daughter. They were longing for a child. And they function in this story as a metaphor or as a type of the nation of Israel, who's also barren at this time and longing for God to answer her prayers. Your prayer has been heard. God is faithful. The second thread that comes through is this one. God can do the impossible. God can do the impossible. This is over and against the the mantra of our day, God is not good, God is not great. When you're suffering and you long for something to be different, but it doesn't change, what are you led to believe? That God can't, God isn't able. When you're faced with a choice between whether to go your own way, manipulate things, make your own life something out of nothing, or to yield, to be meek, to be lowly, to wait upon God. And you choose to go the other way. The the implicit thing that we're saying as we take life into our own hands is, God, you can't, but I can. But biblical faith is born out of impossibility. There is no one who can claim to be a follower of Jesus. There's no one who can claim to be a Christian who doesn't at the same time and in the same breath say, I believe God can do the impossible. There is no other way, there's no other space in Christ than to believe in the impossible. Zechariah and Elizabeth are beyond childbearing years. Older couples can't bear children. The stage is set in verses in verse 7 when we talk about the barrenness of Elizabeth for God to begin to do what only God can do, to come and aid and rescue His people, to produce life out of death. God is the God of the impossible. So we get on in the infancy narrative. We get uh, the angel saying to Mary, verse 37, chapter 1. She says, how will these things be? How will this be that I'll bear a child? I'm not even married. For nothing will be impossible for God. Nothing will be impossible for God. Echoing back Abraham and Sarai, Genesis 18:14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
This thread of God doing the impossible runs from the start to the finish. We have no hope apart from God being able to do the impossible. Not only is it impossible for an older couple past childbearing years to have a child, it's impossible for a dead man to be raised. It's impossible for a man to still a storm, to speak to the wind and the waves. It's impossible for a man to be able to make a blind person, born blind, to actually see. And yet these are the things that God is doing in the person of Jesus. God is a God who can do the impossible. Surely we believe this as the people of God. Luke starts his story obscure and yet so basic for the way that God works in the world. And the call to the people who hear of God doing the impossible is a call to believe. It's a call to believe. It's a call to trust in God who's able to do the impossible. And yet our constant refrain is, like the Israelites in the wilderness, can God provide bread for his people? Can God provide meat? Can God provide water? It's always to question the ability of God to do what God has said he's going to do. To be faithful to you. To care for you. To provide for you. Never to leave you or to forsake you. No matter how dark your life may get. The temptation is always to disbelieve. The invitation is always to believe. And we see that played out for us in this little story from Luke 1 between Zechariah's response on the one hand and Elizabeth's response on the other. The third thread, and this begins to have something a little bit more to do with us, is that God works in and through the holy people. And here's what I mean by this. We are fascinated with fame and fortune. We're fascinated with, with, with neon signs and flashing lights. We're fascinated with attention and the magnificent. And so if you want to be where the action is, what does the world tell you to do? It says be great. It says be creative. It says be unique, be exceptional. Do as many Twitters or Facebook updates as you can to get as many hits as you can, etc., etc. It says to be spectacular. But God chooses to work through the everyday, through the basic, through the mundane, and particularly through the holy. What does Luke say about Zechariah and Elizabeth? Verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Here we find ourselves with a couple in ancient Palestine that has committed their lives to faithful living in the everyday with their God. And as an aside, just note their circumstances. They long for a child and they don't have one. They've prayed year after year after year for a child and they don't have one. And yet, in that circumstance, Luke is able to say this about them, that they were righteous 
walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. That is, in a place where their deepest desires were going unfulfilled, and yet they were walking faithfully with God. Faithfully with God. So do you want to be a part of what's going on in the world? Do you want to be a part of, of substance and of life and of reality? The world says sex, drugs, rock and roll. And the gospel says holiness. Countercultural at every point. But to take up the ways of God and to live them faithfully day in and day out in Boston in September in 2010. In your marriage, with your children, in your friendships, with your roommates. No fanfare, no spotlight, but to walk faithfully in those places. And God does his work in those places and among those people. God shows up. The fanfare, the spotlight gets old and proves empty. But holiness proves to be this way of deep life and deep satisfaction and deep peace. And the fourth thread, again, picked up here in Zechariah and Elizabeth in this infancy narrative, but running throughout the biblical witness, and one that Luke loves to emphasize, is that more specifically, God works in and through prayer. Now, once again, what does the world say about prayer? Prayer is really ridiculous, actually, from the perspective of the world or of those who don't believe. Prayer makes no sense. It's you in a blank room sitting, talking to a wall. It doesn't do anything. If you want to do something, if you want to be an activist, get out there and do something. Don't just sit on your knees and talk to yourself. There's Zechariah praying in the temple. There's the people of God outside the temple praying before God. And God hears their prayer and begins to act. Don't miss the significance of that connection. Do we want to be a community that sees God at work in the city of Boston this year? Do we want to be a community that sees God at work in our own hearts and our own lives this year? Then according to the biblical witness, and even according to this story at the beginning of Luke's gospel, we want to be a people of prayer. A people who are on our knees, crying out to the God of of power, a God of faithfulness, to come and exhibit His strength among His people. To rend the heavens and come down, Lord. Activism in the church is prayer. It doesn't get beyond prayer. It is prayer. And God will show Himself and make Himself known and reveal Himself. So the question I have in closing is, how how do we respond to this kind of story? We, We talked about coming back to the center, and we are coming to the center. We're coming to look at the story of God's purposes in Jesus for the fall. And we find that this story is a story that challenges our world and its ways, It challenges our belief that God is is capable of doing the impossible, that God is faithful to us in all circumstances. It challenges the belief that holiness is the way to life and truth and, and wonder and joy and substance and that prayer means something. How do we respond? How do we respond? Do we respond like Zechariah as we encounter this story of God doing great things among his world? 
with disbelief, with a turning away from, from these things to our own way? Or like Elizabeth, and then like Mary, is there that humble and lowly response of God, you are God, and I'm not, and I praise you for doing these things. I trust in you. I yield myself to you to have your way with me, have your way with Church of the Cross, have your way with the church in the city of Boston. Lord, have your way in my life, have your way with my children, have your way with my spouse and my marriage, have your way with me. And that way of trusting faith. This is the way that is charted for us in this biblical story. God who does the impossible can actually produce this response in you and in me. Even in the faith we're dependent. And praise God, praise God that He has sent His Son Jesus to come and take people like us who are wired to believe that He can't, that He won't, that He doesn't care, to do life our own way. He sent His Son in order to do that most deep of surgeries upon our hearts that we might truly say, yes, God, I believe and I depend and I trust in You. Amen.